Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Freedom in Christ. All things are lawful. I, I, I'm, I'm free in Christ. And of course, that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. We are free in Christ, but we're not free to stumble into sin. We're not free to yield to temptation when it comes our way. Freedom in Christ. That's a beautiful phrase. Because of Christ, we are set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin over our lives. We're also set free from trying to earn our salvation as God provides it to all through faith in Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. But are there some things that we're not free from? You may think you're safe. You may think, well, I'm under grace or I'm saved or I'm in Christ or I'm whatever. You may think that you're safe, but, but, but if you do you're badly mistaken because you can stumble into sin. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Pastor Clay was gone last week, but today we're jumping right back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and our series entitled Crossroads. In the first part of chapter 10, Pastor Clay explained to us why the Apostle Paul was taking us on a trip back in time to learn from Israel's mistakes so we don't make the same ones. In that message, we learned that freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom from temptation. The enemy does not want you to succeed. Temptation will come. You have to expect it. You have to anticipate it. And if you don't, you will stumble into it. Today, Pastor Clay is going to give us four practical applications from the first half of 1 Corinthians 10 and then walk us through the second half of the chapter to show us something else that freedom in Christ doesn't mean. Thanks for joining us today. Let's dive in. Two weeks ago, uh, we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that the Apostle Paul basically takes us on on a journey back in time. He basically puts us in a time machine and takes us back to the nation of Israel, and, and, and pretty much specifically the nation of Israel and their wanderings around in the wilderness and all the, all the blunders, really, that they kept making as they kept turning away from God in this situation, that situation, this situation, that situation. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard that message. If you weren't, I encourage you to go back and listen to it because that kind of sets the table uh, for what I'm about to, to say. But when you get a chance next week or something, go back and listen to that message if you missed it. Because uh, it's really important because Paul's bringing out some things there that we need to make application for for our lives. And so he walks all, there, all through there in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then he, and he comes to this uh, statement in verses, uh, I think, uh, 11 and 12 or 10 through 12 or something like that. He comes to this statement. He says, now these things happened to them. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. Now listen to what he's saying. These things, I've, I've just led you through all these things, uh, uh, people of God, that, that Israel did out there in the wilderness. These things happened to them as an example, that they, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So, Paul kind of kind of summarizes the point that he's making in those verses leading up to verse 11 and 12 about the whole history lesson, why he took us back in time. And he says, now, uh, this was Israel, and they were making those decisions, and they were turning away from God at, at those times and all that stuff. But God, in His sovereignty, was using those things as examples. Are you, and He's saying to us, are you paying attention, church? Are you paying attention? This is for us. And two weeks ago, there were four... Uh, kind of practical application points that I didn't get to that I want to cover real quickly this morning. Then we're going to go back to worshiping the Lord and then we're going to look, time permitting, the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But we start with this one this morning. Here it is. Freedom in Christ, this was the division statement two weeks ago. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom from sin's temptation. And, and, he, and he starts out by saying the, the nation of Israel, they're just like you. They, 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 they believed in the same God you did. They worshiped the same God you did. They're just like you. And Paul's warning is, if you're not careful, you're going to end up just like them. You're going to fall into the same trap. You're going to make the same mistakes. And so here's some, the application points uh, for you and I to apply this morning. It starts with this one. Temptation will come. It's just, it's just this, this practical understanding that temptation will come. And here's what he says in the first part of verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. In other words, this is, this is nothing new, uh, church today. This is nothing new, church in Corinth. This is nothing new, cross-culture church. This is nothing new, thousands of years earlier, 
to the nation of Israel that, that temptation will come. As far as I know, as far as I understand from Scripture, there never is a time in our life where we reach a place where we simply are no longer tempted to sin. As far as I know, as long as there's breath in this body, there will always be this, this, this pull towards uh, temptation to fall into sin. That's why Paul says there in verse 12, hey, everybody, watch out, pay attention, be careful, lest you fall into the same mistake they made. You, you may think you're safe. You may think, well, I, I'm under grace, or I'm saved, or I'm in Christ, or I'm whatever. You may think that you're safe, but, but, but if you do, you're, you're, you're badly mistaken because you can stumble into sin. You need to understand temptation will come. Listen, the enemy doesn't, doesn't want... You understand this, right? The enemy doesn't want you to live in victory. He doesn't want the power of God operating in your life so that, so that you do have, have uh, triumph over the temptations that come into your life. He wants you to fall. He wants you to stumble into sin. And that's why Paul says, watch out. Be careful. Temptation will come. I, there's a person that I know that uh, is not, he's not connected to this, this church, but he, he called me a, a few months ago and he told me this story about how he and his best friend and their wives were out at dinner. And during the course of uh, dinner, his, wife's, uh, his best friend's wife uh, began to play footsie with him under the table. At dinner, kids, you can ask your parents what that means. I just to, and and I, I said, well, well, maybe 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 she thought that that she was doing that to her husband. No, he said, no, I'm telling you, no, it was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was not a gentle brush. I know what's going on. What do I do? I said, well, you need to go to your your friend and you need to say, listen, I, I'm just telling you. Here's what happened. Because you just you got to tell the truth, right? And so he did. He went to his friend. His friend's like blown away, but his wife totally denies it. Oh, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yada, yada, yada. And, um, but he did the right thing. So he calls me a few weeks ago, and he and his friend have you know, put a strain on their relationship. You can imagine, probably would do that. Put a bit of a strain on their relationship, but they've been meeting for coffee and stuff periodically and that sort of stuff. And so the other day, uh, his wife's friend, I mean, his friend's wife calls the gentleman that I've been talking with, uh, who does hair for a living, he's a hairstylist, and calls him and, and wants him to start doing her hair again, start styling her hair. And he said, what should I do? You understand what I'm saying to you? you? Temptation, the enemy does not want you to succeed. Temptation will come. You have to expect it. You have to anticipate it. And if you don't, you will stumble into it. Which is basically what I... I said to him. Okay, so uh, temptation will come. Here, here's the second idea. Uh, judgment will come as well. That clearly is part of the, the point that Paul is making in that text that we looked at two weeks, two weeks ago. Clearly, judgment, um, discipline, consequence, however you want to call it, but clearly God dealt with the nation of Israel as a result of their sin. Now, uh, will God deal with us? Will, will, he, will he respond to sin as immediately or in the same way as he did back then? I don't know. That's in God's hands. We talked a little bit a couple weeks ago about why he dealt so decisively and quickly with the nation of Israel in those situations. Uh, but what I can tell you is what I said a couple weeks ago, and that is this. Sin always, 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 always has its consequence. There will always be a consequence uh, to sin. And, and you just, just need to understand that that's part of it. That if if I'm not alert, if I'm not paying attention, if I stumble into to sin, I, I can expect that a loving, heavenly Father is going to deal with me at, for that sin. Right? You do the same thing to your kids, don't you? Because you love them. They may not believe it at the moment that you're wearing their behind out, but, 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 you, but it's because you love them, right? It, it, that, that's what will happen. It, it's, it's, just, it's just the way it will work. Judgment will come. Here's the third one. Escape will come. I'd say amen to that one. I'd say amen to that one. Yeah, come on, come on. Escape will come. You see, this, this, is, the, this is the great thing. God, this is one of the promises God made. Look, look at it. We pick it up in the latter part of verse 13. And God is faithful. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to 
endure it. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, and the Word of God is clear that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Since He is God, He obviously does not want you or me to sin. And so part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit's dwelling in me is part of that purpose. There's a lot of things that, that the reasons why, but part of that purpose is to convict me of, of temptation to, to stumble into sin, to alert me, to make me aware that, uh-uh, don't go down this road. No, don't, don't, don't involve, get in that conversation. No, don't act in that way. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. That's what he promises he will do. Sometimes this verse is misunderstood. Some people have, have kind of misquoted this verse to, to imply that, well, God will never let the temptation be more than you can handle. Can, can I tell you this? I can assure you the temptation is more than you can handle, is stronger than you can handle in yourself. That's not the promise. The promise is that when the temptation comes, God will always, always, always send a way of escape. Now, at the very least, that way of escape will be the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that moment, coming and saying, Clay, uh-uh, no, you know, you know that you're not honoring me if, that, if that's where you go, or if that's what you do, if that's what you think, if that's what... At the very least, the Spirit's convicting will be the way of escape. But whether it is uh, an interruption of a situation, whether it is a phone call that comes out of no, no, no matter how it is or what it is or where it comes from, the promise of God's Word is that God will provide that way of escape. So the question then becomes, real quickly, the question then becomes, am I going to, to take advantage of the opportunity to escape the temptation? Because we already established temptation is going to come, right? Temptation is going to come. So the, the question is, am I going to take advantage of the opportunity God provides for me to escape in that moment, or am I going to stumble right on into sin? And there's not a person in this room or listening to this message that doesn't know exactly what I'm talking about and hasn't probably done both at one time or another. There's not a person in this room that probably wouldn't say, that, yeah, there's been times I've absolutely ignored the Spirit of God in my life and, and stumbled right on in to that, that sin. But the great news is that God promises promises that he will provide this way of escape now that means that you and i have to be sensitive to the spirit of god working in our life we have to be sensitive to to to, to hear his voice when he says clay ah. okay then and and then uh and when that happens so so temptation will come if we give into it consequence will come escape will come here's the last one that, that we need to understand you better run you, you'd better run that's that's the listen to what he says now look look at look at, the, look at it in verse uh, 14 and 15 Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You know what that word flee in uh, the Greek means? Yeah, flee, run, get, go. Yeah, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Uh, Paul specifically mentions idolatry, but obviously it would refer to any of the sins that, that were mentioned in the first part of 1 Corinthians 10 and, and any sin in general. Paul says, don't think about it. Don't pray about it. Don't, don't see how close to the edge you can get. When temptation comes, you'd better run. Walk. Don't walk. Run as fast as you can to the nearest exit. When temptation comes and God provides that way of escape, you'd better run. Because if you don't, you're going to stumble into... You're going to do it. You're going to stumble into sin. And when you do, because God loves you, that consequence is coming as a result of it. By the way, when uh, Paul says there, uh, I speak as to... Wise men, it's interesting, he doesn't use the, the more common uh, Greek word for wisdom, Sophia, which would refer to more kind of a worldly kind of idea of wisdom. Instead, he uses the, the Greek word phronimos, which Paul preferred to use when he was talking about spiritually discerned, spiritual wisdom. So basically what he's saying is, to the Corinthians and to you and me, because this is where we should be. He says, hey, listen, you're spiritually discerned, or you certainly should be spiritually discerned. You judge for yourself whether what I'm saying is true or not. And of course, it was true. It was true. And it's still true today. All of this is in the context of our freedom in Christ. That, that was a big deal to the Corinthians. We've already seen that. That phrase that Paul uses several places uh, in, throughout his letter, this phrase, all things are lawful. It is a lot of people believe that the Corinthians had actually coined that phrase. They'd actually come up with that phrase. At the very least, it had become a favorite phrase of theirs. All things are lawful. I, I, I'm, I'm free in Christ. And of course, that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. Paul didn't necessarily disagree with them about that because he doesn't want them to get caught up with the, the ascetics and the, 
uh, all the guys that wanted to bind their, their religion, make it all about rules and regulations. We are free in Christ, but we're not free to stumble into sin. We're not free to yield to temptation when it comes our way. That God has an expectation on our life. Temptation will come, but to borrow from another place in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the second uh, main idea for, the, for uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. It looks like this. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom from our responsibility. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom from my responsibility. Be, I'll read the verses as we go this morning. Get to those in just a minute. But let me start by saying this. Because salvation is an individual, personal thing. In other words, a person is saved when, when he or she acknowledges their sinfulness, their brokenness in the sight of God's holiness. When he or she acknowledges their sinfulness, acknowledges or recognizes that there is nothing that they can do about their sinfulness to, to correct their relationship with God. There is no good works. There is no amount of money they can give. There is nothing that they can do. When he or she recognizes their sinfulness and the fact that there is nothing that they can do about that sinfulness, and when he or she chooses to, to do an act of faith by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the, the payment of his or her sins, and that is the only means of their salvation, when he or she makes that decision, they are adopted into, born into, the family of God. And it is a personal, individual decision. Whether you make that decision when you're in your home alone, or you're in a stadium of thousands of people at some evangelism crusade, and hundreds of people come forward at, at, at one time during the altar call or the invitation time. In that moment, if the salvation that, 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 you're, that you experience, if, if it's real, if it, is, if it is genuine, in that moment, it's just you and God. No matter how many people are around you. It's, it's the Holy Spirit dealing with your sin and drawing you to Him. And it is you surrendering your life to Him and inviting Christ to be your Savior and Lord of your life. It is an individual, personal decision. But because it is an individual and personal decision, there is a, a danger sometimes of thinking that, that because it is personal, because it is individual, that that means that my walk with, in Christ is an individual, personal thing. And it is not. It, it, certainly in its entirety, it is not. Add it to that is a good bit of what I would call American individualism, right? You know, you and I live every day with freedoms that the majority of people on this planet have never experienced. The freedom to, to live where I want to live. The, the, the freedom to, to choose the, the career or the job or the direction I want to go with my life. The freedom to get in my car and drive all the way across the country without having to go through... Uh, any checkpoints or anything, to go anywhere I want to in, in this country. The freedom to eat what I want, healthy or not, uh, unless you go to New York City. I think they got some restrictions there. But the freedom to eat what I want, healthy or not. The freedom to, to watch what I want. The freedom to listen to what I want. The freedom to, to, to live my life the way I, I want. Freedom is a, is a wonderful and a powerful thing and it is worth cherishing and protecting and even dying for, as we recognized last week on Memorial Day weekend, recognizing those who paid the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that you and I enjoy. Freedom is a wonderful thing. But there is also, as I just said, there is a danger that with that freedom comes the, the concept or the idea, and I'm, I'm referring specifically now or particularly to our freedom in Christ, that that freedom somehow sets me free from any and all responsibility. And that is simply not the case. You could, you could think of it this way. I have a little thing to bring up on the screen. Tyler's going to bring up. I have no responsibility for my salvation. I know I have responsibility 
from my salvation. In other words, I had nothing to do with my salvation. It is a grace gift of God given to me. God took responsibility for my sin on the cross when he personally went to the cross and died in my place. God took that responsibility for my salvation. He made it possible for me to be saved. But having entered into that relationship, having, having trusted Him as my Savior, I am in that moment adopted into the family of God. And with that adoption comes certain, certain responsibilities to now live my life as, as if I'm a member of the family of God. In other words, to live my life as if my heaven, in the way in which my Heavenly Father would desire for me to live my life, to do with my life what my Heavenly Father would desire for me to do with my life. And so there is freedom in Christ, but it's not freedom from my responsibility. And Paul lays out here, uh, the way I'm breaking it down, three specific areas where we have responsibility now that we're a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want to share those with you in the time we have left this morning. First one is this, responsibility to the church. Responsibility to the church. Now, and just before I read it in just a second, who is the church? That's right. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are part of the church slash the body of Christ, however you want to refer to it. The church, by the way, the Greek word is ekklesia. It simply means the gathered ones, the collected ones. All right, let's, let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse uh, 16. I'm going to read, uh, I think, through verse 18 uh, here. Is not the cup of blessing which we uh, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You get the impression he's emphasizing something here? Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices? sharers in the altar hey y'all y'all want to see something neat okay <laughs> message gonna get real short y'all did uh y'all want to see something neat listen now and i, and I will talk about this in greater depth when we get to the second half of first corinthians chapter 11 uh where paul really gets into the lord's supper but uh a lot of you are aware that this practice that the church does has been doing for 2000 years that we call the lord's supper was, was birthed out of, the, the first Lord's Supper Jesus brought was birthed out of what was known as the Passover meal. The, the, the disciples were gathered together that first night with Jesus, and they were gathered together to, to celebrate the Passover meal. It was a celebration and a commemoration of the action that God had taken on behalf of the nation of Israel, bringing them out of captivity, bringing them out of slavery after 400 years in Egypt. On the night that that happened, the death angel struck down every firstborn in the nation of Israel, be, uh, I'm sorry, in the nation of Egypt, because of Pharaoh's hard heart, make sure that's clear, because of Pharaoh's hard heart, struck down the firstborn, but the death angel passed over the children of Israel when they, by faith, took the blood of an innocent lamb and took that blood and painted it, put it on the door frame, the doorposts of their house. As an act of faith, that's what they were doing, an act of faith in God's redemptive power to save them from, from this situation, the death angel passed over them, and the nation of Israel had been celebrating that Passover meal ever since then. They still celebrate it today. Orthodox Jews, or even non-Orthodox Jews, I think, still practice, celebrate, commemorate the Passover meal today within the context of the passover meal or the passover event that when the family all gather together and they're for this and it's quite an elaborate event if you've never uh, experienced one or seen one or whatever else but uh, during the course of the passover event the the israelites would partake of they would drink four cups of of wine or fruit of the vine you want to be good baptist here uh good or fruit of the vine uh, they would they they would take these four cups, uh, in essence, they would offer up four toasts. There are four specific toasts during the course of the Passover meal. You with me? There are four specific toasts, with four specific cups during the course of the Passover event. The Israelites had named each of the four cups. They had given, them, they had given each of them a name, and the name that they gave each cup 
represented some aspect of the Lord's deliverance and how God had delivered them. Each, each cup had a name. Each name represented some aspect of God's deliverance. The name of the third cup that the, that the Israelites would take part in during Passover meal was not, they, had, they actually had two names for it. It was referred to either way as the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And it's that cup that Paul specifically references here in 1 Corinthians 10. When he says, do we not all partake of the, this cup of blessing that we partake of? Now listen, we'll get to the theological implications of that third cup when we, when we, like I said, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in a couple of weeks, but Paul is clearly applying it to the Lord's Supper that, that when we gather together and we partake of this cup, he's clearly applying it to the Lord's Supper and clearly applying it to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And his emphasis through it, as we just read, is that because of the blood of Christ, you and I are we're blood brothers and sisters. We are blood brothers. We are literally blood brothers and sisters because if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are under the blood of Christ, just as I am under the blood of Christ. And that makes the relationship that you and I have very special, very unique. We literally are brothers and sisters in Christ. The reason, by the way, that I think Paul starts uh, his emphasis with the church, you know why I think Paul starts there? I think he starts there because, as we've seen throughout this letter, if you've been with us, there were all kinds of issues in Corinth. There were all kinds of, of squabbles and disputes, and, and I'm of this group, well, I'm with this group, well, y'all are, your mama wears army boots, or whatever all they were, whatever all they were, they were saying. There was all kinds of disturbances, all this kind of stuff going on. And what Paul is saying, by, by bringing them to this cup of blessing, this cup of redemption that, that all of them as part of the body of Christ are under, what he's saying to them is all of that stuff, all the stuff that threatens to tear us apart, all that stuff that threatens to separate us, all the disputes, all the, all the disruptions, all the disagreements, all of it is no match for the one thing that binds us together, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the one thing that binds us together, the blood of Christ. And connected to that, then, Paul brings in, which was obviously was part of that act, uh, the Lord's Supper, the bread. And he says there in verse uh, 17, he says, since there's one bread, again, representing the, the body of Christ broken, since there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, it's going to be interesting when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, we find out what Paul's, what, what's going on there and, and how he has to deal with it. But, but again, what does he say? One bread, one body, one bread. Hey, hey y'all, we're one. This, this, this thing, this, this sacrifice brings us together. He even brings in, in verse 18, y'all see that? He even brings in the, the Israelites' sacrifice that they would bring. The family would come. They would offer up a lamb. And in the, in the practice of it, the, the, uh, the priest who performed the, the sacrifice would take part of the meat. And the rest of the meat, the family would, they would cook up right then. They'd sit down and they would eat it together, showing the responsibility and the unity that they shared together because of this sacrifice. And Paul's saying, that's us. This is, this is the unity that should exist within the body of Christ. And listen to me, it is critically important. It is, this is a critically important message for the church today. Because you and I, and I don't have to tell you this, you know it's true, you and I live in a culture where all of the emphasis is put on the individual person. The individual person's rights, the individual person's beliefs, the individual person's uh, right to live and do whatever they want to do with their life. It's the individual person. Please don't get angry with me, but that ungodly philosophy is bleeding over into the church. It is bleeding over into the church where, where, the, where the people are, are, are saying, it's, it's, it's my life, I, I can do what I want, it's, it's my individual choice to, to do this or live this way. Or, or, and the point that Paul is making, the point he's trying to drive home in, in all of this, in these examples, in all of this, is that the response, Tyler, bring it up on the screen, the responsibility each of us has to each of us who make up the body of Christ. We, we, we can't divide this thing. We can't, and all of those things that would threaten to divide us are, are nothing compared to what unites us, what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And, and this philosophy is bleeding over into the, 
into the church where people are saying, well, I don't, I don't have to tithe if I don't want to. It's my money. I don't have to serve. Somebody else can do that. I don't even want to go to that event. People will talk to me. I could give other examples, but you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, that, it's that idea of individualism and, and my rights and, my, and, and that trumps everything else. And if you're thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. Don't I have rights? I mean, don't, don't, don't I get to make some choice? Don't I have to, the right to, to decide for myself what I do or what I want to do? Or, or don't, don't I have a, a right to do this? I have a short one-word answer for you. In Hebrew, it is not, oh. In English, it's nope. 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 You don't have the right. And I wish I had a bulletproof vest right now. And, and, and listen, I know, because we're so ingrained with this, if you're first thought, wait a minute, what, what, why not? Why don't I have my own rights? Here's why. Maybe you've read this before. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, if, if you said, I, I'm, I've accepted Christ as my Savior, newsflash, that means you've been crucified with Christ. I know you, physically you weren't there on the cross when He died. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Second newsflash, Dead man has no rights. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. There it is, right there. And this is the struggle, right? And we all struggle with this in our daily life to remember, oh, I'm crucified with Christ. But no, I, I wanted, no I'm crucified with Christ. I understand that struggle. That's why the Spirit dwells in us. That's why we're, we have to be thinking in terms of this unity. But the point, again, is coming back to is that, is that you and I are, are one body and, and the needs, the, the, the everything of you Come before me, and vice versa. For each one of us to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I have a responsibility to you, to my brother or sister in Christ, I have a responsibility to the church. And we do. Here's the second one real quickly. Responsibility to God. We have a responsibility to God because of who we are in, in Christ. Let me read, uh, picking it up in verse 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He is, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Paul returns to a subject that he's already addressed, and that is idol worship. And just to remind you, because Corinth was at this crossroads of the world, the trade world and everything else, religions, all kinds of gods, all, types of, all kinds of temples, all kinds of idols, uh, idols and, and, and deities and religious beliefs. They, they were as common back then as, as Facebook postings on the beach are today here. It, it, it was just part of the world that they lived in. And Paul brings something into this that he hasn't said before. If you remember, if you were with us back in chapter 8 when this kind of first came up, he basically said, you know, hey, it's just, it's just meat in the end. We all know there aren't really are any, any other gods. It's all just meat, so it's really... Not necessarily wrong. He already kind of dealt with this idea. But now he brings in the fact that, that when these people offer up uh, this, this, these sacrifices, what they're really doing is offer up being, offering up sacrifices to demons, to the demonic world. Now, there may have actually been idols specifically to demons. Demon worship has gone on for thousands of years. But, but really, really... Any religion, any false religion, any, any God, in a sense, is demonic in that it leads people away from worshiping the one true God, which is what Satan wants, right? Whether it's ancestral worship or animistic worship or whatever it would be, ultimately, if it leads people away from the one true God, then it is, in a sense, demonic worship. We don't have, it's not our context, right? We don't have, little, we don't have temples all over, we don't have, in this part of the world. There are places in the world where this is very practical. But, but that, that's not us, right? That, I don't have to worry, that's not us. And the meat, we'll talk about that, that's not us. I don't have to worry about that. But the application for us 
is simply this. You, you can't live your life in two different directions. That, that's the point that he's making. That hey, Hey, Corinthians, hey, church in Raleigh, you can't live your life in two different directions. You can't do it. You can't, you can't uh, say that you profess Christ. You can't say that you believe in one true God and then live your life by a standard that is influenced by, by the, uh, a worldly standard that is, that is ultimately influenced by Satan. You can't, you can't do it. The key for us really is in verses 21 to 23. He says, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we're stronger than He is? You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Again, this, this is coming back to this freedom that we have in Christ. And that was, a, as I said earlier, that was a big deal to the Corinthians. I'm free in Christ. I'm free in Christ. It was a big deal. Hey, and can I say this? It should be a big deal. It is a big deal that we're free in Christ. Remember, many of them were coming out of Judaism, and so they were very familiar with all the do's and don'ts and all the restrictions that, that Judaism brought. And if they didn't come from Judaism, if they came from one of the other religions, all of the other religions had all of their works, had all of their things that you had to do to please their God. And now they've been set free. They've been set free having discovered the truth that they're saved purely by grace and grace alone and through no merit of their own, through nothing, no work that they could do. Only the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross has saved them. They're free in Christ. And so are you and I. And it's, it ought to be an exciting thing in our life. But that freedom doesn't mean that I, I'm just, I can live my life any way I want now. Right? And, and we've already talked about that. You had, you had those folks. You had antinomians. They're against law. Oh, I can do anything I want. I'm under grace. I can do anything I want. And, and, and Paul said, no, that, that's, that's, not, that's not it. We have a responsibility to God to live our lives in a way that will honor Him, that will, be, that will be productive and glorifying to Him and what He wants for our lives. And so this is just the truth. We can't live our lives in two different directions. And I see this, I, I'm telling you, through the years as a pastor, I've seen so many people struggle with this, trying to follow Christ in, in, in certain areas of their life, but then, but then being pulled back in another direction to, to, to follow themselves or their desires or the world in some other area of their life. And you can't do it. You can't do it. Uh, teenagers and single adults, for example, are under enormous pressure to bow down to the idol of, of sexuality and the culture in which they live which would mean to be to 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 have sexual relations uh, outside of the covenant design that God gave between a, a husband and wife in marriage. Enormous pressure. Nobody's downplaying the pressure that that's faced. And so the question becomes: Which direction am I going to live my life? Toward God and glorifying Him, or or toward my flesh and and, and the world and, and and what its expectations are for me? You can't live your life in two different directions. That's that's all he's saying there. No, we, we don't have the idols in our context, like, but it's still this choice that we have to make in our life. And real quickly, one more. Responsibility to the lost. There's a responsibility to the lost. And he specifically uh, says it here, picking it up in verse uh, 24. He says, uh, Let no one seek his own good, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go eat anything that is set before you, eat anything set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, well, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake i mean not your own conscience but the other man's for why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience if i partake with thankfulness why am i slandered concerning that for which i give thanks now we, we could have i mean if paul had just stopped with let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor <laughs> that, that would have been enough to camp on for a while but then he goes on and he elaborates and he explains a little bit and he's right back into this, this eating this meat sacrificed to idols that we looked at back in chapter 8. It, it clearly was something that had been an issue in Corinth. It had been come up again because of the sheer number of temples, the sheer number of sacrifices going on in Corinth. Some of the meat 
the animals that were offered up, it was bound to end up in the marketplace to be sold for profit uh, for those priests, the temple, however they did it. It was bound to show up in the marketplace for uh, consumption. And Paul had already said in chapter 8, and he, and he reiterates here, if you, go to the, if you go to the marketplace, don't ask the butcher, hey, where'd that come from? Don't. Just buy it and eat it. It's, it all belongs to God. There are really no other gods. They're, 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 that same argument they made back in chapter 8. He's saying it, it doesn't matter. It's, it, it's, just, it's just meat. And he says, and, and if a neighbor happens to ask you over for dinner, because here's the thing, Paul assumes that you and I, like him, want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he assumes that we're going to have a relationship in some way with those outside of Christ. That does not, by the way, uh, break the unequally yoked restriction. Second Corinthians chapter 6, we'll look at that if the Lord allows us when we get there. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't break that unequally yoked thing. It says, if a neighbor asks you over dinner, go, have dinner with them. Hey, how else are we going to win people to Christ if we don't know them, if we don't in, engage in their lives, if we don't involve ourselves in their lives, the messiness, the neat, whatever all is going on, if we don't invest in their lives, how are we going to ever lead them into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Some of you were here a few weeks ago when I asked, asked all of you to, to make a commitment to have a, a neighbor over for dinner at least three times this year, at least three times, whether it's the same neighbor, different neighbor, well, you choose, however many neighbors you got, but have at least three neighbors over and just have dinner with them this year just to get to know them, just to build a relationship with them in the hope that eventually that person, through that relationship that you're building, that person can come to know Christ as their Savior if they don't already know Christ as their Savior. Cindy and I had our first uh, neighbor night, by the way, a couple weeks ago uh, for, of 2019. We had the, uh, Travis and Lauren over and we had some neighbors over and we had a dinner together and then we watched a movie outside on Travis's big blow-up screen, and we, and we had a great time. We're just, just building a relationship. And, it, and, it, and it, it stands to reason that invariably as you're building this relationship, you're having them over for dinner, probably sooner or later they're going to ask you to come over for dinner. And that's what happened in Corinth. It says if a neighbor asks you over for dinner, it's okay. Go ahead and have dinner with them. And don't you dare ask, where did this meat come from, before you take a bite. Just dig in. Because it's all gods, there aren't any other gods. All that stuff he'd already explained in chapter 8, and he reiterates here, but then he throws a little monkey in the wrench. A wrench in the monkey. A, a monkey wrench that went somewhere. I don't know. Anyway, he adds, do you remember the restriction he gave back in chapter 8? If you were here, I'm sure you're all etched on your minds. Back in chapter 8, he had said the only restriction on eating this meat sacrificed to idols is if it causes your brother or sister in Christ to stumble. So we're right back to what I just talked about a minute ago. The, 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 even if you think you have the right, even if you think you, that you, it's perfectly fine for you to do that, if it would cause a brother or sister to, to, to stumble, to fall into sin, to sin as a result of what action they see you taking, as Paul says back in chapter 8, so that if that's the case, I won't even eat the meat. I just won't do it. Now, he adds a new restriction. He says, eat it. No, it doesn't matter a thing about it. But if they say to you, hey, you know that steak I just put down on your plate? That was sacrificed to Zeus last night. If they say to you, that, uh, that, that hunk of meat right there, that came from the temple of XYZ God. If they say that to you, Paul, this is a new restriction he adds. He says at that moment, you have to respectfully decline and ask him to pass the salad bowl again. Because, here's why, here's the implication. If you partake of that meat now, after they've told you, you're reading, I, I got to read between the lines, but I get the impression that, that, this is, that, that this guy that's had you over for dinner is testing. He, he's checking out to see about this belief system. If you partake of this meat now after he said, hey, that was sacrificed to Zeus. Hail Zeus. That was sacrificed to Zeus uh, yesterday. Uh, if you partake of it now, he is going to assume that you have no problem with other gods. In other words, at that moment, if you partake of the meat after they've told you that, at that moment, you, you will be communicating a theologically untrue statement. Because the truth is, there is only one God, and there is only one means of salvation. And so at that moment, you respectfully decline. Now, the latter part of verse 29 and verse 30. Well, I'll read this to you again real quickly. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? It almost sounds like he's contradicting what he just said. 
Because it sounds like he's saying, well, wait a minute, I know it doesn't belong to anybody, why can't I just eat it? What I think Paul is doing is returning to the rhetorical question teaching method that he had used earlier. I think he's anticipating what some of the Corinthians, how they would respond to this. This is a new restriction he's added. Can't eat it if they tell you it was, it was offered to a god. So I think he's anticipating that some of the Corinthians are going to say, well, wait a minute, you already said that, that there's no other gods. You already said that, that it doesn't matter. You already said that I could eat this meat. It doesn't make any difference. So why should my conscience be judged by another person's conscience? Why should anybody uh, judge me if I've given thanks for it in, in the name of God to eat it? I think Paul's anticipating that argument. And the answer he gives is found in verse 31 and following. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. Watch this, not seeking my own profit, watch this, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. There it is. There it is. It's a responsibility to the lost to say, well, maybe I don't care. It's not any meat. I don't care who, there's no other gods. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But I care about that person. I care about where they'll spend eternity. So, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to choose the right path. I'm going to do the thing that, would, that God could use to draw that person to Himself. It's a responsibility for the lost that you and I have. We, we have to, as I've said many times, we have to give a rip. Somebody's got to give a rip that the world is going to hell. Somebody's got to care and be willing to, to speak up and, and, and say something about it. It is a responsibility that you and I have and that we have to, we have to, we have to embrace. Because, even if you say, well, what, what? but it doesn't matter. I, it's, it's mine. I don't care what their conscience says. My conscience is clear. It doesn't matter. Just to remind you, here it is again. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Ladies and gentlemen, that, those words, that verse has to be more than memorized. That verse has to materialize in my life. That, that verse has to become the reality of my life, that, that every day my life is lived for the glory of God because I, as far as I'm concerned, in my flesh, I, 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 was, I died with Christ. The old clay died with Christ. He sure keeps wanting to resurrect himself, but the old clay died with Christ, and I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to make the choices He would have me, the decisions He would have me make, no matter what the world thinks, no matter what my flesh wants me to do, no matter what. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to choose to be crucified with Christ. And I'll say it again. If you're crucified with Christ, it's not good English. Dead man ain't got no. Dead man ain't got no rights. Because I've laid them down for the, for the good of God's people, for the glory of God, and for the possibility of seeing the lost come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the responsibility that you and I have. It's our responsibility. We can't pawn it off on somebody else. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have a responsibility to the church, the body of Christ, to say, uh, I might could do this or I want that or that, but, but I have a responsibility to these people around me. I need to make sure that they're that they're okay, they're taken care of, that they, that they, if they need to talk to somebody, if they have needs, if they, I need to be there for the body of Christ. I have a responsibility to God that, that, that I'm not going to live my life in two different directions. I'm going to choose to glorify God. Even if it, my flesh wants to do something else or the world says I'm crazy or, or whatever else, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I have a responsibility to God and I have a responsibility to those without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me bring it up to you one more time and then we'll close. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, Pretty much covers it all. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Let me just say this real quickly too. I need to say this. When Paul says give no offense, if you know anything about, about Paul and his interactions, there were times when Paul clearly offended people. When Paul says give no offense, what, what he's, what he's, he, he's not saying give no offense no matter what. That, that, there, that when you must take a biblical stand on a position, you have to take a biblical stand. In other words, if, if a Muslim says to me, Muhammad is, is, the, is, the, is the great prophet and, and we only go to heaven through, through the approval of Allah. I, I'm not going to remain silent so I don't offend them. I've got to say, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. The Word of God says that Jesus, you know, I've got to respond. And it may offend that person, but you understand what I'm saying? If a universalist says, oh, you know, it's all God, it's as many paths to God, I get to God any way I want. I've got to respond... And Jesus said unto him, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. I've got to respond. And there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. So when he says, don't give offense, he's saying, it's not about you. It's not about your rights or your privileges or, or whatever else. That, that I shouldn't give offense to the Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own prophets. In other words, it's not about me, but the prophet of the many, so that they may be saved. That is our mission. That is our calling. That is our responsibility. Thanks, Pastor. As we heard today, freedom in Christ means that we are free from the responsibility for our salvation. Jesus took our sin debt upon Himself on the cross and purchased our salvation with His own blood. But as we also learned, we are not free from responsibility from my salvation. Being adopted into the family of God brings with it certain family responsibilities to the church and even to the lost around me that God desires to use me to reach. It is a responsibility that we should gladly embrace for all that God has done for us. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.